you need to be mentally and physically orientated to that machine. Just a common example is, you know, going from your bedroom in the middle of the night to the refrigerator in your house. Most of you guys can do it quite easily. And and but along the way you're gonna be using some physical references, touching some bits and pieces, whether it be a, a table or whatever, to actually get you to that point. You're listening to the Rotary Wing Show, a show for helicopter aircrew by Helicopter Aircrew. Each episode, we explore the world of helicopters with the people that fly and support them. If you want to catch up on past shows or see photos from the interviews, head over to rotarywingshow.com. You can also subscribe on iTunes. Just search for Rotary Wing Show and get future episodes direct to your phone. I'm your host, Mick Cullen. Welcome back to episode seven and a big g'day to you, the helicopter fanatic, wherever in the world you are listening in from. And the download stats for the show are actually indicating that you do have fellow listeners in a bunch of countries. So Australia, obviously, the US, Canada, China, NZ, Spain, UK, South Africa and Brazil are the big ones. But we have downloads from 31 countries in total. Won't read them all out, but very quickly, a couple of them are Iraq, Norway, Sudan, Colombia, uh, Serbia, and Italy, which is pretty crazy and also pretty cool at the same time. So please don't be a stranger. Send me some photos and info about uh, where you're operating from and the types of machines you're flying, and I'll post those up on the uh, Facebook page. You'll also find a, a contact page on the website over at rotarywingshow.com. And look, you'll get extra points if the photos include Rotary Wing Show written in Chinagraph pencil on your windscreen. Now, this week, uh, I jumped into the Professional Pilots Rumor Network, or pprune.org, as most folks know it, and asked for input on who I should be tracking down to get on the show as a guest. So one of the users there, uh, Ursa, suggested I get a TC from Magnum PI, a TV series. Now, I've never actually seen Magnum PI, um, so I must have missed that uh, as I was growing up on the age bracket. So I actually had to Google it uh, to find who this TC fella uh, was. And hey, it turns out he's the, the pilot in the TV shows, but otherwise a, a very fictional character, and he's uh, not available to interview. So no joy there. Although along the way, I did get the names of several of the actual guys who did fly for the show, and one of them is Steve... Uh, so K-U-X, if I pronounce that right. In fact, Steve was the the guy who logged the most flight time on the show, Magnum PI. And the reason I'm telling you this story is that it dovetails nicely into today's episode. A little while after the Magnum PI series stopped filming, Steve was involved in a a pretty spectacular crash. His MD-500 was in a hover over a field when it just flips up and over and straight on its back and lands, would you believe it or not, in a, a drainage ditch in the middle of this field. So Steve is still in the cockpit, and from the video, it looks like he's, he's stuck strapped to the chair. Uh, and the video I've cross-posted on uh, P-Prune, and uh, you'll be able to check that out. I'll give you the details in a moment. But at least a, a fair part of the, the cockpit is actually underwater. And it just happens that there's a, a Hawaiian local there called Tiny, uh, who lifts the 500 up, slightly from the water, uh, the whole front of the helicopter, and some bystanders are able to get Steve out and, and free. Now, that was a pretty champion effort by uh, Tiny, as you can probably guess, who is, is no small human. If you're on P-Prune and search for Helicopter Podcast, you'll be able to find the thread there with the, the video of that crash and the rescue posted in it. So you just never know when you might find yourself and your helicopter in the water. And our guest in this episode is Mick Dowling from a Care Flight Group. And we're going to be talking all things helicopter underwater escape training. Mick Dowling, uh, you're the commercial Hewitt manager at uh, Care Flight Group. So what does that mean? What's, what's Hewitt? Okay, g'day Mick. Basically, Hewitt is a training program designed for frequent overwater flyers, basically crew or passengers that are flying over water frequently, primarily in helicopters. So this, uh, this course gives them the skills to be able to egress out of a, uh, out of a ditching situation um, if they've survived that, that um, initial uh, ditching impact. 
Okay, so Hewitt, so it's helicopter underwater escape training, I guess would be the abbreviation. Yeah, correct, yeah, helicopter underwater escape training, yep, that's, that's the one. All right, well, and we chatted about this quickly before we started, but why is it called helicopter underwater escape training and we don't do car underwater escape training or plane underwater escape training? Why, why is it such a big deal for helicopters? Yeah, good question. Basically uh, designed originally for helicopters. The chances are there's a high possibility that if, or likelihood that if a helicopter crashes into the water, that it's going to roll over given the, um, the high centre of gravity. So that rolling over uh, aspect generally will happen with a, um, with a helicopter to the water. Even if flotation systems are fitted, you're not guaranteed that they're going to, going to operate correctly. So it was um, mainly developed out of some incidences that the US Marines had back in the early 80s where they deemed uh, through some of the accidents that they had that some of those accidents, in their opinion, were survivable. The passengers were surviving the impact. It was just what was happening after that with the ingress of water, et cetera, getting confused. So I guess um, that's where it all comes from. Although um, the same skill set that we teach um, on the course is transferable to any situation, whether it be a you know, cabin crew that sort of rolls over or car into the water off a bridge, uh, fixed wing aircraft. So it's um, you know, it's relevant to any sort of water or marine environment if you're in some sort of uh, machine. All right, we'll get into the details and talk about the disorientation in a little bit. But Mick, what's your background just quickly? How did you get into Hewitt initially and, and helicopters? What was your sort of train to get there? Yeah, I was. Uh, I did 23 at the Royal Australian Air Force back in, joined up in 77. Working towards the early 80s, I was doing quite a bit of general flying on my Huey and, and Chinook helicopters in an effort to become a um, helicopter crewman back there in the Air Force. Protocols changed a little bit and those assets were being moved to the Army. And at that time in my career, I was happy to stay in the Air Force. So I ended up sidelining off away from there and, and spending most of my career around the Hertz and Caribou. So in, in a load control, um, load planning, restraint type Type, uh, area. I've right, always so, had a um, keen interest in the, in the helicopters. Okay, so you obviously left the Defence Force at some stage? Yes, I left. The, um, I got out in 99 and then started a small business with my wife up on the Sunshine Coast. And a colleague of mine, an ex Air Force guy, was working for Carefight at the time in the role that I'm currently in. And he was um, needing some assistance from time to time. And I was, I was able to get away and actually give him a hand as a casual. So that's where it started and um, I've always had a, a keen interest in teaching and it sort of progressed from there and I ended up sort of filling his slot and he moved on uh, in, in the company in another area. So um, yeah, I've sort of been doing it for the last five to six years now with CareFlight. And can you just talk a bit about CareFlight then? It's obviously a couple of different arms to CareFlight and uh, yes. just quickly talk about the, the training side of the company or the organisation I should yeah, say. CareFlight, yeah, CareFlight obviously um, you probably aware it's, it's, it's Got quite a few arms now with the training services side. We're based in Brisbane now and we provide training both to the military and also commercial organisations in a variety of um, areas, obviously including our Hewitt. Also, we provide training in the emergency breathing systems or HEADS, which is starting to become a little bit more vogue now with a few of the incidents over in the, the North Sea. So we're looking at possibly um, getting a bit of an increase in usage within Australia with that. We also can provide training in the Cert 3 and Cert 4 in aviation, so air crewmen there. Helicopter landing site office courses for primarily for the uh, oil and gas at the moment and external load operations courses there. So pretty much anything to do with um, the helicopter field, uh, we're providing training there at the moment. All right, Mick, and back on the, the Hewitt stuff, who mm-hmm. needs it? So I guess there's two two questions here is the people who think they probably don't need it but may actually end up needing it and also on the legislative side, who actually needs it in that regard. So if we just go back to the first one, talk about um, pilots who are flying around in helicopters in a country like the middle of Australia or possibly overseas and, and it's like, okay, I'm not near any water, why would I need to do Hewitt? I'm sure there's plenty of stories about landing in, in dams and things like that. Yeah, that's correct. There's... Mike, actually, the statistics are telling us now that up to 20% of ditchings worldwide are actually happening inland, that's in lakes and rivers. So the training's relevant for pretty much anybody, regardless of whether you're flying offshore. You know, there's a 20% chance that if you're going to ditch, it may be inland. So we provide the, the training to um, 
pretty much all helicopter operators, and, and that goes down to government departments with the agricultural side of things, the police force, uh, the Barrier Reef uh, Marine Park Authority rangers, the rangers on, on Thursday Island, a lot of the MSQ uh, employees, the marine pilots that are flying offshore to, to ships and that sort of thing. So they're all involved, in, and also the media. Uh, a lot of the, uh, the networks um, require their media personnel to be here trained as one of their first things they need to do before they can continue working with that particular network. So it's a wide range of um, personnel and obviously um, the Defence Force as well have, have been trained the same. It's what about the all rig workers and things like that who are doing the transit and helicopters? Are they doing Hewitt training now? They're doing Hewitt training. The operators themselves are in the, uh, covering themselves with Hewitt. A lot of the passengers and the offshore uh, employees are required to do BOSIUT courses, which is a basic offshore safety induction course. Um, currently, uh, we don't provide that training. Um, that's about a two and a day, two and a half day, sorry, um, course that involves uh, life boats, um, oil induction processes, and some firefighting elements. It's a little bit more involved, but the the Hewitt component of those BOSIUT courses is is pretty much exactly what we're providing uh, to our Hewitt. Uh, customers at the moment. And the second side of that question, Mick, was about the legislation side. Uh, so, you know, if you're not in Australia or FAA or overseas, is there any yes. requirements on who has to do a Hewitt to maintain licences or to be able to do particular operations? At this time, not really. It was more um, developed for the offshore oil industry. If you're competent in Hewitt, you do a course and you, and you, you gain a competency in it, that certificate or that competency is basically good for life. The currency on that is generally dictated by the company, by the operator. So um, in most cases, it's two years. Uh, offshore oil industry, which is world's best practice, is every two years they need to re-qualify. Uh, most of the organisations within Australia are working off that two-year competency period. Some are pushing out to three years. So it all comes back to the operator themselves on what they deem um, currency is going to be... Um, where the currency is trying to sit at. Yeah, and be resource-based too, I guess. Yeah. Uh, most of the most oil and oil and gas operators are two years. That's just a standard protocol for those guys. Um, Defence works off two years. Um, and as I said, some of the operators within Australia are actually after three years now, but that's their, that's their call on, on what they require their people to be current sure. with. What about some stats? I don't know if you've got any handy there, but talking about, as you said, you know, 20% are actually inland. But what about survival mm-hmm. stats and things like that? What I can tell you that is um, there was a review of over 400 individuals involved in helicopter crashes in the water between, uh, or for, it's over a six-year period, um, showed that the mortality rate of 8% uh, in those who had received Hewitt training as opposed to 25% in those who had not. So there's quite a difference there for survivors that were trained in, um, in Hewitt. The other thing there too, Mike, is a lot of the there's a high high chance of survivability in, in the ditching initially. There's a high chance of survivability of surviving the impact if you're doing things correctly and your and your personal preparation is, is is sort of set. It's just coming back to that um, being able to sort yourself out of that machine um, once you're sort of under the water, which is the problem. Okay, and what about the course development? So as you said, it started with the uh, possibly the US Marines. What was like the early courses like compared to the, the courses that you're running now with CareFlight as far as equipment, length, duration, the sort of syllabus, the things you'd cover? Yeah. In the early days, um, training was conducting fairly primitive sort of underwater contraptions back then. It was like um, a seat on a couple of 44-gallon drums and guys sort of pulling them over and that sort of thing. Not a lot of theory was done. But now as, as it's developed, and, and a lot of this development was done through the military initially, um, and then that's spread through the commercial world to the point now where, for example, the military in Australia, are, um, they have two centres, one in Townsville and one in Nara, utilising um, high-fidelity METS systems, which um, those training uh, machines can be altered and configured to almost replicate the aircraft type that they use. So they're quite high-fidelity in that regard, so very, very good um, training. We also run the outside the military. Um, we're running um, training systems, helicopter underwater escape trainers, not particularly 
meant to replicate any type of helicopter. It's a generic trainer, has six seats, doors, windows that the, um, the students need to operate and, and use to get out of the, the aircraft. So a lot of the, that training in that generic trainer is the first step, basically, and, and then when they go away back into their airframe, they're incorporating what they've learnt to adjust it into their uh, aircraft type. And I'll get some photos uh, but, of, the, of that cage off you to put on the, the show notes as well, just to show people what you're talking about. Because uh, when you actually yep. do it from a like a public pool, it's a it's a bit of an operation because mm-hmm. you've got a, a freestanding you know like a, a large commercial crane hanging over the fence, and on the end of that is this uh, you know, as you said like a cage, and uh, and the folks climb in that, and then you uh, you dump it in the water uh, rather rapidly. Pretty much, yeah. So we operate all throughout um, uh, the east coast of Australia. Um, our, our training centre in Brisbane, sorry, is an indoor facility. That's worked at the Bantry Crane. If we're operating in uh, Mackay or Cairns or one of those remote type um, regional areas, we use a, a crane from a local crane operator. And that's basically what it is. It's almost teabagging the, um, our um, training system into the, into the pool. Still very, very safe though. We have a lot of quick release mechanisms and safety components built into that, into that machine. And we're always uh, running that training with um, qualified divers on scooter gear in the water as well. Um, for the safety of the students, so it's, um, it can look a little bit um, crazy when you when you first see it, but certainly very, very, very safe, but realistic training conditions for the guys. Yeah, it's a big operation too, because as you said, you got a couple of divers in the water, you got the crane operator, you got the instructors on top, uh, and then you got the cage with uh, the students going through. So it's it's uh, yeah, it's not a small operation. No, it's, it's a fair bit involved in it, a bit of logistics to sort of to get it to all work. But it's, we've got a damn pat now. Now, Mike, it's, it's a pretty easy, easy um, gig to, to sort of get sorted. And um, we've got very good suppliers that, um, that help us out with uh, providing the cranes and the divers, et cetera. All right, let's move into like some of the nuts and bolts then. So people who are listening who haven't done Hewitt training or have done it and maybe listening to this as a bit of a refresher, mm-hmm. can we go through, I don't know, is there five or six, what are some key overlaying uh, principles that you need to think about uh, before we get into the actual details of it? With the Hewitt training itself, we get a lot of clients who've been um, spoken to by other people that have actually done the course. And um, there's a percentage of people that will rock up on a, on a training day that are fairly worried and nervous and, and not too sure how it's going to work out. But at the end of the day, it, all it is, is is 12 to 13 seconds underwater. So I stress that to the to our um, clients that look, if you can hold your breath for 12 to 13 seconds, um, deal with a bit of water up your nose. Basically, that's all it is. It's, it's basically uh, following some very simple procedures to get yourself out of there, to stay orientated, and follow the procedure, hold the breath for 12 to 13 seconds, and, and you've completed the, the task. So start things off really slowly on, on an upright submersion, and then we just gradually add little pieces in there, rolling it over, blindfolded, using a secondary plan to move to a secondary exit, etc. And generally, at the end of the day, um, they've been able to get through it and, and, um, and they're all um, happy and they're good to go as far as safety in the aircraft goes. All right, I guess with that question, what I was more aiming towards was people who are actually flying day-to-day, so, so less so much the actual training yep. day itself. But uh, when, we no jump, when we jump in a helicopter and go flying, you know, we're thinking yep. about our operations and things like that. But is there a, you know, a couple of key things we can be thinking about in our you know, pre-flights and our operations that if we do actually end up in the water, that's going to give us a, a bit of a head start? And uh, I guess after we get out of the aircraft as well, what do we need to worry about? Yeah, certainly. Um, it's just a, a really basic pre-flight check you do. I know the guys are all doing pre-flight checks in, in other areas in the airframe, but for your personal safety, we're looking at personal preparation. So that's just your own personal kit. Examples can be tucked, you know, shirts tucked in. Uh, we see it quite regularly in our machine. Uh, somebody's in there with a shirt, the machine goes upside down, the shirt goes over the buckle of their their harness and they're, they're scratching around trying to find it. So it distracts them. So it's tucked in shirts, buttons done up, zips done up. If you have long hair, that's tied back. Boot lace is done up, done up. It's pretty much done stuff, all that done nicely. Um, any mobile phones or anything out of your top pockets, if you get a four-point harness going across the chest area on impact, bits and pieces are between the, um, the harness and your chest. Uh, your chest are going to go probably into your chest. So nice and clean at the top. Um, that's the first thing. Then we're looking at um, loose articles, so little loose articles in the airplane itself. Um, and that can be just newspapers, maps, obviously baggage, everything locked down, tied away nicely. 
you lost track of if you're wearing it, it's fitted correctly, you know how it operates. It's always tucked away so you don't in, in, inadvertently activate it. Um, and obviously, if you're not wearing the life jacket, it's stowed in, the, in an accessible position. Um, then we're moving to your harness and seatbelt situation, um, having that adjusted correctly, nice and low around your hips, and try and get that buckle or release mechanism central so it's nice and easy to find and locate. Then you're looking at identifying that primary exit, i.e. the exit you're going to go to in an emergency, whether it be a jettison that will handle uh, push-out window, um, identifying that and a, and a plan on how to get to it, and then obviously a secondary plan. So if that primary fails, you're moving to that secondary exit and, and you know how, it, how that um, exit's going to work for you. Um, then we're um, just, just identifying your emergency equipment within the airplane itself. So fire extinguishers, crash axes, bits and pieces like that, your, your um, life raft, just know where they are. Uh, you may need to get those into those at some point. Um, identifying your reference point, which I believe is the most important thing. Um, a reference point, it's a point known to you that doesn't change, that you can locate with your hand from the seated position. So in let's talk about the yeah. Let's let's talk about the significance of that then, and what you yep. would normally recommend for folks would be a reference point. Okay, for the pilot, I guess his his reference is going to be his controls initially. Um, he's going to be trying to get that machine down as best he can. He's going to need hands-on controls. So at some point, he may or may not be able to take his hands off those controls. Um, that'll be his call. But certainly for the non-flying pilot or for the passengers, that reference point. A good reference point would be the seat if you're able to grab it. Um, that's that's a, a perfect reference uh, if you're able to grab the seat or a handle or something else in that machine that you can grab that doesn't move. That once you grab that, that puts you in a good place. You know exactly where you are, and that is where your plan, your escape plan, starts from. So it's a nice little pick in the box when everything's all the violent motions have stopped. You hit that reference point, it puts you in a great place, and you just work off your plan from that point. So to it's the starting point. Now, Mick, we're actually just inserting this little section because we didn't get it in the uh, the first run through and realised afterwards. So mm-hmm. there's one, yeah, we're talking in the middle now, talking about the uh, reference point. Uh, there's one other thing you wanted to cover now, though, so you want to bring that up about the uh, brace position. Yeah, like it's really important um, that the uh, the brace position is, is an important factor in this surviving incident. So... Yeah, we spoke earlier about there's a high um, a chance of surviving the initial impact as the aircraft pitches. Increasing your ability to survive that initial impact can certainly be enhanced by adopting good aggressive brace positions. When you've got a correctly adjusted four-point harness or seat belt, generally you, you can expect your upper and lower torso to be well restrained into the seat. However, hands and legs may be free now to, to fail around. So it's really important that we um, lock those arms and legs up you know, restrict their movement as best we can. Uh, we don't want those hands and legs sort of coming in contact with the interior of the airframe. You know, you may be well drilled in escape plans, but if you suffer a broken hand or let's say a shoulder during that impact, it's probably highly likely uh, or unlikely, sorry, that you'll be able to operate those um, emergency exit systems. So, really well, Mick, so, so two quick things there. If you can take us through, like, where do you put your hands and where do you put your, your legs as far as best practice goes? And if you've got any, you know, again, uh, stats-wise, like what do people break in a contact when it hits the water? What, what are the things that people most likely break? Yeah, for, for a pilot, obviously, he's, you're in a position as a pilot to, to be on the controls again. So the chance of you going into a base position in the early stages is not going to happen. As the aircraft goes to the water, maybe rotating over, radar's hitting the water, at some point there, a conscious decision may be made by the pilot to take his hands off the controls and into a brace position. Certainly for a, for a uh, passenger or a non-flying pilot, a uh, brace position that we believe works uh, quite well is, is just crossing your hands over basics. So, for example, taking the right hand across to your left shoulder, getting your fingers under that, that shoulder harness, and vice versa with the left hand up to the right. So you're sort of crossed arms nice and high, locking yourself up there, feet flat on the floor, holding that position throughout all that violent impact motions. Now, as far as uh, injuries go, uh, it's wide and varied. Generally, uh, pilots that I've spoken to that have had issues going to the water or even to the ground, a lot of hand injuries with um, the cyclic sort of bouncing around a lot there. But there's no... Hand injuries would be the major injuries sustained in a ditching. However, it, it doesn't matter how minor it might be, broken thumb, 
twisted elbow, a, a broken thumb or broken wrist, for example. Not a major injury in the large scheme of things, but when you're under the water trying to make an escape, it's certainly a um, something you've got to be aware of and try and prevent any sort of injury in that situation. Especially if you've got to be undoing belt buckles or you know doing door handles or pulling the, the release mechanisms. You kind of want to exactly have your, right. your dexterity there. Exactly right. As I mentioned, you, know, you can be the best cured exponent, but if you can't, if you've you busted your hand or you've broken your arm, uh, the chance you actually operate on that exit you know, becomes very limited. Okay, fair enough. Anything else on brace position before we go back to the rest of the interview? No, I think that's it, Nick. Where, as long as you lock yourself up, protect yourself, uh, then you can continue on with your hillock after the, uh, all the violent motions have stopped. Great. All right, let's head back and finish off the, the reference point. When you're sitting in a helicopter, when it's upright on the ground, like it seems a bit mm-hmm. silly, the fact that you know you know where the doors are, you know where the seat is, or you know where all the equipment is and things like that. So can you just talk a little bit more about like the importance of having that reference point and actually what happens when it turns upside down and everything starts flooding around and you've got bubbles? Uh, can you just talk about that you know, the idea that people think, okay, yeah, I know where, the, know where the exit is and I know where the seat is and things like that. Uh, what happens when the aircraft goes upside down that makes it so important to have a reference point? As soon as the aircraft rolls upside down or our training system rolls over, water rushes in, disorientation becomes an issue, a little bit of panic may even come into play, and simple things become quite difficult to do. Getting a reference point in that position is generally a fairly easy thing to do if you've got a reference point that's close and handy and and you're able to get to. Um, Locating the exit then um, becomes more difficult if you're not using body mechanics or some sort of bridging method. So we try and teach the guys that that hand, that exit hand, must be touching a known, basically a known to a known. An example might be going to your knee, moving your knee till it hits the door frame, so then your hand's transferring straight onto that frame. So you're not, at no time, is that hand that's reaching for the exit, is it in, in sort of space or in just uh, not touching anything. You need to be able to do this, ex- get to those exits and operate them without looking for them. Murky water, nighttime conditions, or even in the, on, on a nice day at 3.30 in the afternoon, visibility is going to be restricted and um, you need to be able to get to those exits without looking for them. And that's where we, we talk about body mechanics or bridging methods so the guys don't miss those important um, references that are leading to uh, exit points. We see it quite often in our dunker, in our machine. Um, generally, the, what normally happens if, if you roll upside down and you randomly reach out to where you think that door is, or door handle is, you generally reach higher um, in most cases. So they're wasting precious uh, seconds there. They're only on one breath hold. So um, reference to see, for example, with the inboard hand and the uh, the outboard hand then moving through body mechanics, bridging methods to find those exits the whole time, keeping in contact with the airframe. Yeah, and I can add some personal experience here. I've done a few a couple of times, but um, one time in Townsville using the, the trainer there, which is kind of set up as a Chinook really and it's quite a big uh, cage we were all wearing helmets and things like that too so somehow or other I, I let go and the, the foam and the helmet basically took me and, and stuck my head on the uh, on the, what's then the, the floor of the aircraft which is now the roof and the cage when it's upside down mm. and uh, yeah I had to get the cage pulled up because uh, once I was there I couldn't find a, a way to go No that's right I mean it's so you can just be missing it by, by a couple of mil you know if you're I'll put it this way it's you need to be mentally and physically orientated to that machine. Just a common example is, you know, going from your bedroom in the middle of the night to the refrigerator in your house. Most of you guys can do it quite easily. And and but along the way you're going to be using some physical references, touching some bits and pieces, whether it be a, a table or whatever, to actually get you to that point. And you can do it so easily because you're so familiar with it. Um, that same mindset needs to be put back into the aircraft. Getting to those exits, using those references so it's it's an instinctive skill set. You know, you've got to practice it. So on the day, if, um, uh, if there ever was an incident happening, you're not sitting there thinking about, hey, what am I going to do here? Yeah, that instinctive skill set should have kicked in. Sure, there's going to be panic possibly there, but at least you're going to have that starting point. Bang on that reference, and then that plan should um, instinctively start coming into play. Okay, so I've got one hand on my reference point, which might be my seatbelt, and I've got one hand, on, one hand on the door now. What's the next step? Mm-hmm. Okay, so you've located the exit. You're going to open that exit, uh, either jettison or, or door or whatever. And you're just going to do a quick sweep around the door frame. So keeping your hand, if you can imagine opening that door, putting your hand out the door, uh, keeping your hand on the 
the train as you as you sweep around just to just to make sure you you can get through there. You know, you may have gone onto a bank or a sandbar or whatever. So you want to make sure you can fit through there. Once that clearance is cleared, then you're going to just bring that hand back and grab the outside of the airframe, whether it's the outside of the window or the door frame. Hold tight. That now becomes your new reference. That is your way out. That's gold. You don't want to let that go. And that's when the other inboard hand now releases the reference and releases your seatbelt. So seatbelt comes off now. You may be lifted off your seat, more than likely will be. No big deal. You've got that reference on the on the door frame. And then that inboard hand now comes and joins onto the right the, the hand that's on the reference on the outside. So releasing the seatbelt, we call it low profile, so you're not sort of scooping any IC leads or whatever might be floating around in there. You're basically just coming hand to hand. So you've got hand, two hands in the same point now. And then um, basically just pulling your head to your hands. Um, just using your upper body strength basically and once you clear and pull yourself out relax let that natural buoyancy take effect and, and you can clear your way to the top end and sometimes you talk about actually breaking the surface like you have your hands up and sort of splashing your hands as you come above the surface just to clear any obstacles or oil or anything on the on the surface yep that's, uh, that's an ideal way to do it if you can once you clear the airframe uh, and you're starting to ascend uh, hands above your head you know um, like a paddling type process so you can just break that water at the top you know like you mentioned there could be an oil fly there hydraulic fluid sitting on the top of the surface so if you can work your way out break the surface just to get that nice first breath have a quick check of everything and if it's clear that's fine if not you've broken enough of that a surface to grab a quick breath and then maybe duck under and move to a to a safer position what's your considerations about when you actually um, fire the, the bottle for your life for your life jacket Certainly not inside the aircraft. And, and coming back again to your preparation uh, with your life jacket, you want to make sure, depending on the type of jacket you're wearing, uh, there are a lot of jackets that have the toggle type that sort of dangle out a little bit below. You want to make sure that they're tucked away so those toggles don't you know, accidentally get caught on anything. Um, I've spoken to numerous pilots in our, um, in our classrooms that have accidentally inflated life jackets in the, in the aircraft while, while doing pre-flight checks, etc., just by those toggles being sort of loose and not tucked away so yeah certainly not inflating in the aircraft so waiting until you clear the airframe um, and ideally uh, working your way to the top clearing the surface once it's cleared then pop your life jacket the risk of popping it early or um, deploying it early uh, under the water it's certainly going to take you to the surface but it may take you into a little bit of a nasty area especially if there's fire or wreckage there in consideration so, uh, my... sorry mate sorry no, you finished that's right yeah, my, my um, suggestion is, uh, is if, you know, if, you, if everything's working clear on the day, that you um, clear your way up to the surface, confirm it's clear there, and then um, pull your pull your life jacket. Right, because I was going to ask about considerations about actually going back into the machine uh, for other people, and uh, like how long's the like the, the helicopter incident I'm thinking about? That thing just went straight to the bottom for uh, it, it wasn't coming back up. But um, yeah, is there you know, stats about how long a helicopter will float for or most of them will sink to the bottom. And uh, when do you think about getting yeah, back in for someone? Exactly. Um, you can't put a time frame on, on how long it's going to float or sit at the surface. Um, you, you can expect it to, um, on an uncontrolled reaching situation, is the aircraft will go to the water. It'll hit the water, roll over and sink pretty much straight away. Um, now, your, your number one priority is to get yourself out of there. Once your exit is guaranteed and you feel you can help someone, then that'll be your... Uh, your call. If the aircraft, if you're out of the aircraft and it's it's at depth and you want to attempt to go back down and, and help someone, that'll be a conscious decision um, by yourself, you and your, you, yourself. And um, if you're going to do that, if you feel you're confident and be able to get in there and maybe help someone, but generally it's it's look after yourself. The majority of times you're only on one back hold. Yeah, once your exit guaranteed. And then, if you feel like you are in a position to help someone, then and only then would you actually attempt that, in my opinion. Yeah, for sure. And I think there's no shortage of crashes on YouTube where you see a helicopter going in the water, and uh, sometimes they do a bit of time to get out. But, uh, yeah, definitely. I know that the one particular incident I'm thinking about, that, that thing just kept going to the bottom of the ocean. It wasn't, there was no way you, anyone was going to go back and rescue anyone from that thing. But so. That was the Blackhawk in Fiji you're speaking of. Yeah, so yeah, uh, if I've listened, so we had an Australian Blackhawk um, 
hit yep. a, a Navy boat of uh, Fiji and went over the side. And uh, yeah, I was airborne for that. And uh, yeah, that one, we had uh, two people die in, in that. It was pretty, uh, pretty tragic. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm familiar. Yeah, I'm familiar the, the, the guys who did survive, though, were, um, you know, they, they used all the Hewitt skills, and, and that's probably what uh, got them out. That's right. And I think uh, a colleague a colleague you'd be aware of also worked with us for a little bit that was in that incident. Yeah. And um, he, he was saying, like, that's 3.30 in the afternoon, crystal clear dive conditions as far as diving and water clarity goes. And um, in that incident, um, he didn't recall seeing anything. So it was another reminder that you cannot rely on eyesight alone to egress that aircraft. You really need to be instinctive skill sets using references and um, being able to get to those references without actually looking for them. Yeah, okay, so we're on the surface. We've um, popped out our life jacket. Hopefully everyone else has come up and we're counting heads. Uh, what's just the, the next short time period then, just to maximise our survival without going into you know extended sea survival? Uh, what should we, we be doing next once we're on the surface? Well, yeah, well, if you've made your egress and you're out of the, out of the aircraft, you're basically it's your second stage of survival kicks in now being in that water. And um, the problem with being in the water is um, you're losing body heat to that water up to 25 times quicker and in the atmosphere at the same temperature. So you don't have a lot of time to get yourself sorted. Now, to stay thermoneutral, for example, let's say we want to be in the water for as long as we can and, and it not be a problem, that water would need to be 32 degrees. Now, nowhere in the world, the sea temperatures are they 32 or above. So regardless where you, where you may find yourself in the water, you're going to be losing body heat quite rapidly. So if, you have, if you've been able to deploy the raft, and it's available to you, you'll, you'd occupy that raft. That's your primary focus initially. If you don't have the raft and you're by yourself, you're going to adopt what we call the health position, which is the heat escape listening posture. Pretty much like this uh, fetal position, locking yourself up, protecting the major heat loss areas, which are the underarm, sides of chest, groin, and your head area. So if you can lock yourself up um, in that fetal position, uh, your light jacket's deployed, if that life jacket's working correctly, it should have you in a face-up position anyway. And um, you can maintain that position quite well in a, in a fairly rough sea. And you're going to build up a quite a, a good little microclimate in that position. If we're in a crew situation where there's more than one of us, we'd adopt the uh, the health position or the big the huddle. Generally started with two or three people coming in nice and close, locking arms, locking legs together, and the rest of the survivors building in around it. So now we get like a cluster of um, survivors, the, the least amount of water that you can get in between each other, the better it's going to be. You're going to build a nice a nice um, microclimate there. The advantages of that huddle is that you've got a 360-degree view pretty much now. It's a really good microclimate there. Any assets or any survival equipment that, the, that you may have on your person now automatically becomes the group's uh, equipment. Big morale factor morale, too. Can, yeah. Yeah, definitely morale. Um, keep an eye on people that aren't doing so well. But once you form that huddle, it, it, that's where you keep it. You keep it locked up nice and tight. And that's about a 40% better chance of uh, survival if you can get into that huddle as opposed to the uh, to the health position. Okay, wow. Mick, we talked about earlier that you mentioned HEADS. Uh, can you just explain what that stands for and, and what that is? Yep. The HEADS is um, a helicopter emergency egress uh, system. It's a small... A bottle of air that has a regulator on the with the heat bottle itself it's, it's basically a bottle of air with a regulator attached to the end of it and um, there's other types of breathing systems the one that was very common currently in the ones that we use for training and, and utilizing our own company as a um, EDS mark II system again it's a, it's a small bottle of air giving you about 28 breaths uh, if you're you know, just a normal breathing pattern, you're going to get about 25 to 28 breaths out of that. The only difference with the, the C-Mark II system is that the regulator is on a 20 inches of hose. So, uh, and, the, and the system is fitted to the, to the life jacket. So it's on your person the whole time and you've got that 20 inches of um, hose tucked away there with the regulator on the end of it. So it's quite easy to trace the regulator back if you lose it out of your mouth, you can just follow that hose back and grab it and wipe back in again. So very, very good. The defence force are using them. Our company 
is using them on depending on the task and just use it doesn't replace Hewitt at all. Uh Hewitt procedures will still need to be used to get out of the uh to make the egress, but it just gives you those um few extra precious precious seconds to sort yourself out if you're sort of in the position where you're paying it up or you're having some dramas. Yeah, and I can't um, emphasize enough like when you when I've done the training with and without that when you hit the water and you know you can have one or two breaths and sit there and actually think about what you're doing, it just drops that panic level um, a, a heap. And uh, I can only imagine it makes a massive difference in actual in, in survival. Yeah, it's very noticeable in the training. Like even for people that haven't used, um, haven't been scuba trained previously, um, it's a fairly easy system to get to get familiar with. And um, going from a, Hewitt, uh, a normal Hewitt scenario without without the heat, without the EVS. And then seeing the guys put the um, using the EBS, it's totally yeah. You can notice the difference there. They're more relaxed once they clear it correctly, and they're, and they're happy with the, the flow there. It certainly gives them um, a little bit more time to sort themselves out and think about what they're doing. Mick, we've talked about a heap of things, and we'll talk quickly, um, shortly about the the structure of the course and where people can go to find out a bit more about the, the actual Care Flight Hewitt course. Is there any other questions I haven't asked or, or things we should cover about uh, Hewitt before we finish up on the actual, some of the nuts and bolts? No, all I can say, like I've had, in the job I've got, um, like I'm, I'm sort of teaching a lot of the commercial, our, our care flight Hewitt instructors also do the training for the Defence Force, but my side of the fence is the commercial side and um, I'm uh, in classrooms with, with clients that have been in these situations, you know, they're subject matter experts basically and um and the, the thing that keeps coming back from them is the fact that it needs to be instinctive. You do not have time, especially as a pilot. You lose an engine at a thousand feet and um, you're, you're fully overloaded doing your job to get that thing down. So they don't have time to start thinking about you. And it's the same with all most jobs, air crew, doctors, paramedics, etc. They're very busy in their own role in that aircraft. So the procedure needs to be instinctive. And the only way you're going to get that instinctive skill set is to just practice it. I see quite often on, on the um, the hard stand with the guys prior to departing that in the aircraft. We we'll see them just going through some quick little movements as far as getting to their exits and whatever. So all that just pays um, gives them better a better chance to um, to get it right on the day because you probably only want to have one chance to get it right. So it's it's obviously important that you get put the right plan into play. It's all about having a plan and how you're going to do things. Okay. Now, obviously, we've got a pretty much an international audience who listen to this, but uh, quickly, if you want to talk about um, uh, here in Australia, uh, where you guys do the training and uh, how it sort of rolls and how people would get uh, in contact to organise that. And if you know of any sort of sister or similar organisations overseas who are doing it, uh, if you could just quickly let folks know about those too. Yep. All the information on our on our Hewitt Media course and many of the other courses that we provide can be found on our website, which is careflight dot org dot au once that site comes up you'll you'll see the tab for training click on that training tab and then it brings up the courses that we have available if it's a Hewitt course you're looking for hit the Hewitt tab and that will bring up course venues um, costs and dates training dates we do provide training just briefly in um, Cairns Thursday Island Townsville Mackay Brisbane Sydney Melbourne um, generally on a monthly basis uh, we can uh, provide training on request. So um, if you have an organisation that had a number of people that need to be trained, we can um, we can go to that location. So our commercial training systems are transportable, um, so we are able to go to in, uh, do the training in location. Yes, yeah, so it's a full day yeah, course. It is a full day course. Yep. Uh, theory component normally it's started at 8:30. Runs through a theory component for the Hewitt and the Sea Survival component. Um, takes us through to about 11:30. And then after lunch, we're in the pool for two or three hours, going running through that practical, uh, very important, obviously, the practical phase. And that is a very uh, to-the-client pace. So plenty of time. You very run the opportunity to, to get through the course. We're on no timeline line as such. If our clients need to or would like to, to redo some of those scenarios, um, we certainly can do that. And even um, more specific training, um, example, the AFP, we do training with those um, those members that and they're being all the kit and, and everything they use. So we can um, modify it uh, specifically to the client's request as well. And I've got to say, you sleep well the night uh, the night after it because it's a uh, it's a pretty full on day when you're in the pool. Yeah, it's always good 
clean out the sinuses, Mick, because um, we do the training every 12 months ourselves, and um, yeah, that's what up the nose is a good little uh, reminder of things. But yeah, it's, um, yeah, it's certainly a good night's sleep after the day, that's for sure. Worldwide, uh, Mick, who else is, is there other companies in the US or uh, Britain that you know of that do similar training? Yeah, there's um, trainings available pretty much anywhere in, in the world. Within Australia, we're probably the only provider for Hewlett and C survival training using the modular systems. Um, there are some other companies using um, different forms of, of training mechanisms, but the statistics have shown if, you, if you're doing this training in a, in a modular system that has doors and exits fitted, you have a high retention rate. You know, there were some studies done back in 2006 where uh, they had... Um, I think it was 153 subjects, and they got, divided them into three groups. And um, group one, they put them in a, into a machine that had no exits in it and gave them two goes at getting out. Um, that was it. And group two, they um, performed three trials. So they did three rollovers in the water with one exit present that they had to operate. And then in group three, they, um, they put them in and gave them six scenarios, all of which had exits present, so they had to operate those exits. And um, what they did then was... Um, sent them away and, and brought them back six months later for a one-off uh, trial with all exits fitted. And uh, that first group, they popped them in, did the rollover, and um, 46% of those guys needed assistance in getting out. Um, the second group, where we had the three trials with the one exit originally, 90% of those guys or um, trainees there uh, needed assistance. And in that last group, where we had the six trials with, four, with all exits fitted, they came back six months later and only 2% of those guys needed assistance. So that replicates pretty much what our training is. Um, we're doing up to five to six roles with exits fitted and uh, it's retaining that, retaining that, that knowledge and skill set. So, Great. I mean, we, haven't, uh, of... we haven't even spoken about blackout goggles, but <laughs> we can save that. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah, well, we do. Obviously, yeah, we, we, we do the, the blackout goggles. Um, so there were certain parts of that training Scenarios we have the blackouts fitted, um, simulating at night time, murky water. I find a Mickey might be the same. Um, I just do mine with my eyes closed anyway. I find yep. that an easier way to do it. That visual perception doesn't change. You don't have water bubbles and all other little things that are distracting at the time. So just shut the eyes. Uh, you've got those good body mechanics and bridging methods sorted out. So it's no, it's quite an easy task to do with the eyes closed. So but we do get them to blindfold. And we also do the trial where, uh, scenario where they do need to go to that secondary exit. So, um, they're checking their primary. It's not going to work for them on this particular one, and they're going to have to move across and um, and carry out a secondary cross cabin um, exit as well as part of their training. Yeah, which uh, in the real case would yeah scare the shit out of me. I reckon that's uh, <laughs> it's not what you want to happen. Yeah, just uh, find yourself on that primary exit. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> excellent. Look, I think we've covered a heap of stuff there, and especially anyone who's done it before. That's a really good refresher. Um, if they haven't done it recently, it's been you know a while since I've done it. Uh, and if you haven't done it at all, it's going to give you an insight into a couple of things next time you go out and sit in the aircraft. Maybe you can just sort of think through uh, identifying you know, what would be your reference point, which might be your seatbelt or the bottom of the seat, and then think about how you're actually going to, going to find that door and uh, and pull yourself out in, in the real case. So, uh, Mick, thank you very much. much. Oh, sorry, yeah, go for it. All right, thanks. Sorry? That's all right. I thought you were going to jump in with something extra. No, I was just going to say, yeah, that's, that's it. Just having that reference. Uh, you've got a reference point. Uh, you grab that. And you're in a happy place, and you know you should have your plan running from that point. So, and, and it's not only for, as you said, it's not only for helicopter operators. You know, we do training with the offshore bow boat racing league, and those guys get get to have a go. So, anyone that sort of, uh, and Peter Peter actually did a um a course for some uh, some industrial guys that, that were driving backhoes on a on a riverbank after those floods. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, came and did yeah they um they nearly lost the backhoe into the into the river, so they. Their boss sort of rang us up and said, do you do escape training? And we said, well, yeah. And it worked out that our little um, helicopter underwater procedural trainer suited their cabin, and we actually did a course for those guys. So it's relevant to pretty much um, any situation if you're working around water and any sort of machinery. Uh, it's a good thing to do. Cool. All right, Luke, thank you so much for the uh, for your time and sharing the, the knowledge there. And, uh, yeah, again, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Guys, Mark, thanks for that. Look forward to hearing from some of you guys. How did you find that episode, folks? Was it useful? If you have any questions about 
helicopter underwater escape or the actual training itself, then do jump on the website at rotarywingshow.com and look for episode seven. You can leave any comments and questions you might have about the episode at the bottom of that page and either myself or I'll get me back to answer uh, those questions. You'll also find a bunch of photos and uh, Hewitt videos there that will give you a little bit more context about what we've just discussed in the episode. And it's really super topical because as I record this just three days ago, a, a CH-53 ditched in the Middle East and all 25 people on board were able to get out. Now you can just imagine possibly being underwater in a helicopter that size and having to wait for a bunch of those folks to get out in front of you before you could get out. And that's something that I would not enjoy doing. I've also seen mentioned on Twitter that the all North Sea uh, helicopters are now fitted with emergency breathing devices, but I'm not too sure about that. You might know more about that situation. So next episode, we are joined by Lorena Knapp, who is a EMS pilot flying A-Stars in Alaska. If you'd like to get email alerts when that episode and all future shows are published, then you can sign up at the top of the website with your email address at rotarywingshow.com. Now this episode is sponsored by trainmorepilots.com. That's a website where you can get some free resources to market your aviation company better online. So check that out at trainmorepilots.com. Don't forget you can also leave a voice message on the website. If you look on the right hand sidebar and I can play that in an upcoming show. So it could be feedback, a question about a past episode or just a, a general helicopter question. Now, from underwater to dropping water, I'll be up early tomorrow to do some aerial uh, firefighting training, and that's a a first for me, Uh, so I should be able to report back on that and how that goes in a a future show. Thanks again for tuning in. You've been listening to the Rotary Wing Show. I've been your host, Mick Cullen. Don't forget to share the show on social media and spread the word. Your thoughts and opinions expressed on the show are those of the host and the interviewees and don't reflect those of their employers. Till next time, fly safe.